Thank you for choosing this Dream Center podcast. Don't forget to subscribe for further updates. It's actually handy that we've got an official reverend in this morning. Yes, for all the blank faces, he's an official reverend, Reverend Higginson, because I'm going to start off with a confession this morning. Oh, that's picture is up, hasn't it? <laughs> and it's a confession that I've made before. It's a confession that some people have made on my behalf. Ladies, you might remember at a recent MPOG, Pastor Tony outed me on a certain subject. It's a confession that some of you in here have not helped me with. You've put temptation in my way at every step. Oh, yeah. And my confession this morning is that I really, really love chocolate. I think about it a lot. (laughs) I dream about it a lot. I love chocolate. The difference between loving it, though, and eating it is discipline. Okay, so I'm saved by my discipline. But when I was a kid in our house, the best time of year was Easter. We weren't religious at all. My family aren't Christians, but the best time of year was Easter because I'd come galloping down the stairs like this, clunking down the stairs with my brother and my sister and we'd wake up really early and we'd go and we'd see a huge pile of uh, Easter eggs, chocolate eggs. And my mum and dad are of the same mum and dad like me that says if it's Easter or if it's Christmas, you can have chocolate for your breakfast, you can have chocolate for your dinner and you can have chocolate for your tea and then you can be sick and then just go to bed. So I do that with Dana. Um, She loves me for that. So one year I came galloping down the stairs and we, we all went through the living room door, bust through the door together, and we all went to our piles of chocolate, and that's what it was all about. And I stopped in amazement, because there, amongst all the Easter eggs, was a chocolate bunny. And I'd never seen a chocolate bunny before. They mustn't have had them when I was a kid. I was about six at this time, so they mustn't have had a chocolate bunny. Now they're everywhere, aren't they? You get bunnies, and you get cows and chicks. Um, but I had never seen this chocolate bunny before, so my eyes lit up. And I remember running towards it and I, I grasped hold of it and it was all, you know, in brightly coloured foil. It looked like a rabbit, obviously a chocolate bunny. And I grasped hold of it and I peeled the wrapper off as fast as I could. And my chubby little hands, <laughs> yes, I, I did love chocolate back then too. My chubby little hands held hold of this bunny. And as I went to bite its ear like this, I must have applied a bit too much pressure because the bunny sort of caved in on itself and I remember looking this is not a word of a lie I looked at my brother and I went it's hollow and I was absolutely aghast that this solid chocolate bunny that I thought was solid was just like just like an easter egg it was nothing better than an easter egg and the word hollow has been reverberating in my spirit for a few weeks hollow therefore meaning having a hole or an empty space inside It means without real significance or value, insincere and superficial. And it's the word superficial that God has really hit with me in my spirit. And the word superficial means lying on, not penetrating below. It means seen on the surface, presenting only an appearance without substance or significance. Just like my chocolate bunny, all my expectations and hope was in that thing to be solid, a solid mass of chocolate, and it wasn't. It let me down because it was superficial. And if we think about these words, church, they're words that we don't particularly want to be described as, are they not? 
you know, we're not meant to be hollow. We're not meant to be empty inside. We're meant to have Christ established in the inside. We're meant to be firmly dwelling with Christ within us. The Holy Spirit, as he pours in us and as we pour him out to the world, he therefore, he pours more and more of himself into us. And we're never meant to be hollow. If we are, if we haven't got that, then what have we got? All we will have is ourself. We'll have our own humanistic thinking. We'll have our own judgments, our own standards, our own perspectives, our own point of view. We'll be living a superficial Christianity. And the scary thing is, you can live like that for days, weeks, months, years. You can live like that for most of your Christian life. And it's not until something tough comes along. You know, we've heard this morning, the rain may come along and your outside wrapper is peeled off you that we reveal what's inside, reveal whether you are superficial. My title, if I was to have a title this morning, therefore, is Are You Supernaturally Spiritual or Are You Superficially Shallow? That's a harsh title. <laughs> An example of these two types of people, if you'll turn with me to Matthew 7, is found in Matthew 7. Verse 21 onwards. Now, this is a really well loved, well known parable. It's the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. That's Matthew 7 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. And Jesus here is referring to those that follow him. This is not a parable aimed at the unsaved. This is to those that are following, those that profess to know him, profess to love him. These are seemingly mature Christians. I mean, they're prophesying. They're doing miracles in his name. They're not just babies. They're not, it's not the unsaved crowd. So I think we can safely say, church, that this is a message that's going to impact us this morning. So basically, we've got the two men here. Like I said, it's a really well-known parable. I'm not going to explain the parable in depth because you, you've all read this a thousand times. Sunday school teaches it. Kresh probably teaches it. And its meaning's really easy to see then. You've got the man who built his house on the rock, which is symbolic of laying your foundations in Christ. Amen? It's of building accurately via the blueprint of the Bible. It's basing your life 100% on the word. Okay? It's being a hearer and a doer of the word. It's not being a superficial and shallow believer. It's having real depth to your life. Christ established on the inside. And the other guy built his house on the sand, okay? Now, I'm really, really good at daydreaming about houses. I buy a new house every week. 
I don't spend any money. Nick's having a mini heart attack in the corner. But what I do, if I've got five minutes, I log on to www.rightmove.co.uk. Does anybody else do that? Hey, thank you, Dawn. Thank you, Jean. It's not just me. It stems out of when I was searching for a house and I've, I've never been able to stop. It's like a bit of an addiction. And what I do is I go onto the website and you can put in exactly what you want to spend. I'm usually a cool million yeah, about a cool million dawn. And uh, you can stipulate how many bedrooms you're looking for, what area you're looking for, what kind of, you know, um, if you want conservatories, etc. And you can find your ideal house. And then, because they're real houses, you can actually look at all the pictures. You can snoop around people's houses and they don't know. And I love that. So I do that quite a lot. Confession number two. <laughs> and uh, if I bring these two houses, therefore, into modern day... I can visualise these houses and I can imagine that the house built on the sand was a lot more attractive than the house built on the rock. And my blonde reasoning for this goes like this. The house built on sand wouldn't have had to spend a lot of money on an excavation process, would it? It wouldn't have had to hire tonnes of machinery to clear away tonnes of rubble, you know, millions of tonnes of rubble. Planning permission probably wouldn't have been as expensive so they would have had to spend less money on the fabric and structure of the house and they could make the inside just more fabulous okay and in my daydream I can picture this house as being like a beautiful white house on the beach come with me Come with me. I can imagine it's got varnished floors, white walls. It'll have modern art hung up at the walls, you know, splashes of colour everywhere. I can imagine an outdoor dining area with tons of candles. And I can imagine the builder sat back, glass of champagne in his hand, just admiring his handiwork. And his guests can be partying away. They've spent the day on the beach sunning themselves and now they're partying away. Canapes and nibbles. I'm going a bit too far. I watch too much TV, don't I? And I can imagine him looking at the other guy, thinking about him building his house on the rock and thinking about him being all sweaty and muddy and still digging deep down and sort of having a bit of a giggle. But if I examine this house in a little bit more detail, I think there's some unattractive things about this house that we might first not see. And the first thing I think is an, a less attractive point is this. The house was built on sand, okay? Sand. Now, we all know what sand is. Do we all know what sand is? Sand is the beach, is it not? Sand is the thing that our kids play on, that you dads get buried up to your neck in, that us mums wiggle our toes in, exfoliate our feet in. <laughs> sand is that wonderful thing that we all visit once a year if we can and have a play in. However, I've looked on Wikipedia, so I've got an actual definition of sand, and it reads... Sand is a naturally occurring material which is made up of ground down loose particles of rock mixed with other variable materials such as shell and coral. That doesn't sound so comfortable, does it? Sounds a bit scratchy. In fact, John, can you put our picture up? Okay, this is an actual particle of sand magnified by about 2,000 times. So that is, that is a particle of sand, okay? That's not comfortable at all. Carrying on then, it says, it's formed over many years as the natural elements ground down the rocks into smaller and smaller particles. And they are transported by wind or via streams and settle into the areas we know as beaches. Ta-da, the mystery of sand has been solved. Okay, so we all know what sand is. It's disappeared, but it, well, that was sand. <laughs> 
So basically then, our sand, as we've just learned, started off as rock. And it does contain small, minuscule particles of rock. And just like the symbolism of building our house on the rock is building our house on Christ, if we are building on sand, we can have an element of building our life on Christ. But it is just an element That is such a dangerous position to be in church because a person like that can come to church every week. They can lift their hands in worship. They can pray. They can be stood up here with the microphone seeming to say all the right things. But it's a very dangerous place to be in because they can exist like that for years and years, but they are not fully grounded on the rock, just on minuscule particles of rock. And when the parable says, doesn't it, when the storms come, When the tough times come and your foundations are revealed, just like wrapping off the wrapper off my chocolate bunny, when that's revealed, that person building on the sand, their house will fall with a great crash. Revelation 3.15, don't turn to it, talks about that kind of person. It says, I know your deeds. You are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. And because of that, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You know, it's a very, very black and white situation being a Christian. You're either grounded on the rock and you're hot or you've got one foot in another camp. And God would say, well, you're neither hot nor cold. You are just lukewarm. We can't live our lives as Sunday Christians, just having tiny, minuscule particles of the rock. Okay, so as well as having those tiny particles, we've also learned that sand, and we can see from the picture, has got a whole mixture of other things mixed up in it. And church, that is the massive, massive danger. Because with our small, tiny element of biblical truth, we can then mix in humanistic thinking, our own standards, our own perspective, our own judgment. We can mix in what the world says is the right thing to do. We can mix in that whole, if it feels good, it must be right thinking. One really easy example to pick, to show you, to to explain this, and it's a really easy example, but I want to make it clear, is the whole subject of gay marriage. Now, the Bible, does the Bible clearly say that it's wrong? Amen? But the world would say to us, well, hang on. Humanistically, I'm going to reason this through. If God is a God of love, is he not? And these two people love one another, do they not? And, and really, if you think about it, the Bible was written at a time when it was a different culture and it was a different context. And these two people, they're not doing anybody any harm and we need to be more liberal-minded. Blah, 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 yeah? At the end of the day, God's word said it's wrong. and We must never, ever allow God's word to be eroded down and to be compromised. Someone once said, actually, to a Christian friend of mine on this very subject, he was talking about it, and he, and he said, what do you think? And he said, well, it's wrong, just plain, it's plain and simple, it's wrong. And they said, well, aren't you Christians narrow-minded? And quick as a flash, he turned round and he said, well, the truth is narrow by definition, is it not? I'm wearing a cream top. It's not red, it's not yellow, it's not green, it's cream. I will only accept that it is cream. And if that makes me narrow-minded, well, it's the truth, so suck it up. Now, it's really easy for me to pick this subject of gay marriage. It's so easy. But what about when God's word says, do not lie? Is a lie ever acceptable? What about a little white lie that might actually help someone? What about when the word says, do not gossip? 
What about if we're passing prayer information on? How far do we go? How many people do we tell before it becomes a gossip situation? What about do not steal? You know, what happens if you've got a bill to send off? Do you rifle your company's stationery cupboard? I don't, it's all right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what about do not watch filth? How far do you go with what you watch on TV? And I've seen some of that Sky One stuff and some of that for me, I think, whoo, that's a bit risque. Quite simply, we just cannot allow compromise, the compromise of God's word in any area of our life. Because if we do, we are in danger of building on the sand, are we not? The rock of God's word then has been eroded down. It's been mixed with philosophies. It's been mixed with political correctness. It's been mixed with humanistic thinking. The whole, if it doesn't hurt anyone, if it feels right, then just go and do it. And it's also been mixed with popular trends. Now, popular trends are powerful things. And popular trends, church, are demonic things. It says in 1 Corinthians 2.6, We speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. The rulers of this age, those people, those, whoever those powers that be are usually in the media who are telling us what is right and what is wrong are influenced by the spirit of this age. And pastor has often referred to this age as the libertine generation. Libertine meaning those who are unrestrained by convention or morality. A free thinker. It's that whole, if it feels right, then just do it generation. You know, I think back to when I was a kid. And I think back to what was acceptable when I was growing up. And I think about something like music videos. When I was a kid, music videos, I used to follow people like Aha and Wet, 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 stuff like that. And music videos was just basically the band like stood on a hill somewhere, just spaced... I was going to tend a microphone then, I've got one. <laughs> just, just singing their song, you know, the hair whipping in the wind... That was just the fellas. But that was just quite an innocent thing in my day. Now, I will not let Dana watch certain channels on MTV because stars, stars like Rihanna and Lady Gaga, they're doing stuff that, that makes me blush to watch in my own home with my child. And I've got values. My values are set here and I will not compromise those values and I will not negotiate. And if I did... Because Dana will often come along with, please, mum, let me, let me, whatever it may be. If I let my values to slip, then my values are here. And they're they're the values that I'm instilling into Dana, are they not? And then when Dana has kids, and her kids are like, mum, mum, can I, can I, please? She's starting off here. And if she compromises, she's going either further down. And that is what has happened over society, over the generations. That is why society is in such a mess that it is now. Church, I implore you this morning to examine yourself because this process of eroding down the word is a very subtle one. That sand (laughs) keeps disappearing. (laughs) That sand took many, many years from being a rock to being eroded down into simply sand. Ask yourself, have you took your foot off the brake in any area? Are you doing anything today that a year ago you would have deemed unacceptable? You know, I did something a couple of weeks ago. You smeared this with confession juice or something. I did something a couple of weeks ago, which 
I shouldn't have done. It wasn't anything massive, don't worry, but it was wrong. And I, I did something. You'll probably know what I'm talking about, husband. <laughs> and I allowed something that I would not have allowed in my house like 10 years ago, even last year. And it's a subtle process. And all of a sudden you can, you can find yourself doing something and think, that's my values. I've negotiated my own values there. Pat spoke a few weeks ago about building discipline and sacrifice and obedience into our lives. They are words. They're not easy to hear. Much of the church at large just wants to hear messages about grace and love and forgiveness, does it not? And concepts like circumcise the flesh, you know, cut off your own flesh, deny yourself. They're not easy to suck up. But my Bible, probably yours will be the same, my Bible doesn't say to me to stand romantically gawping at the cross of Christ for the rest of my life. Matthew 16 says I have to pick up that cross and I have to follow him. Do I not? And we heard a few weeks ago in 2 Thessalonians how Satan works undercover in stealth mode. And it says for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Satan is subtle. Satan is, is subtle and he works in secret and he's working in your life right now trying to kill, steal and destroy the truth of God within you. I also think about those foxes in Song of Songs that came in at the dead of night when it was dark and they crept into the vineyard and they went and they ruined the fruit that had been laboured over. Don't allow the foxes to overnight go into your vineyard and to ruin the fruit and cause your fruit to stink. Yeah, let's have our eyes open this morning, church. And I've seen tons of stories in the news about houses. I've got a picture here, <laughs> moving off the sand. Uh, houses that overnight, there's one, that's not the best picture, but overnight, they're built on the beach and overnight it, it just erodes, coastal erosion and the houses are falling. Do you put the next one on, John? Would you want to live in a house like that? <laughs> that's not on right move. I tell you, I've not found that on there. Doesn't the word then warn us that Satan can come as an angel of light? And what we might have thought we were building in a really nice, good place. We might have been showing off to our friends that we were living on the beach. We might have thought we were building on a solid foundation, but overnight that can happen. If I think of the word hollow again, hollow being something of little value. Well, that house isn't of much value, is it? You know, the people overnight have pretty much lost everything. I also think about sinking sand. You know, death by sinking sand. It used to fascinate me as a kid. I don't know why. I was fascinated by sinking sand. And, you know, you're in it and it's very hard to get out. And it's a very quiet, almost romantic kind of thing being sucked into sinking sand. And you see sort of someone going down. It's very, it's a slow process. But once you're in it, it is very, very hard to get yourself out. And over the last few weeks, Pastor has been talking about why the church today is not moving in power. Church, this is the reason why. Because much of the church are still sucking on milk when we ought to be moving on to the meat. We ought to be established in Christ. We ought to have the truth within us. We ought to be firmly established on the rock. Instead, we're simply dipping our toe in and out of the sea. We're collecting some nice shells on the beach. We're building sandcastles. And when the tide comes and knocks the sandcastles down, oh, hum, we just go and build somewhere else. That is not a picture of a governmental church, is it not? And I don't mean to be uh, negative this morning, and there's some good, good, good people in this establishment, but that for me is a picture of something like the Church of England, that they have their nice, unoffensive services, 
they have their nice weekly programs, everything's very middle class, everything's very safe, and they're building their sandcastles on the beach. And when the powers that be come along and say, oh, we're changing the doctrine this week, hell doesn't exist anymore, and actually a homosexual vicar is okay, they don't kick a fuss up, they just let the tide destroy the sandcastles, and they take their shells over to another part of the beach and just start building again. My Bible says that we are to build church on the rock. Amen. And the rock, when the tide comes along, is still standing. It doesn't move. It doesn't compromise. It's still standing. I've lost where I am now. <laughs> Got excited then. If you turn me to 2 Timothy 3.5. And 2 Timothy 3.5 talks about these kind of people. It says, these people have a form of godliness, but they deny its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all e e kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janet and Jambres, they're French all of a sudden, opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. And church, here's my chocolate bunny again. These men are seemingly saved people. On the outside, they're looking and doing all of the right things. They have an attractive package. They raise the hands, they pray, they say, they could probably quote the Bible better than everybody in here. But we're told to have nothing to do with them because once you've took that wrapper off, once you've unpeeled that, that shiny foil, they are shallow, they are hollow, and they are superficial. They're only concerned with their outward appearance. You know, they don't even have an ounce of power to transform themselves. Why they are trying to get into other people's homes and trying to um, get power over the other people is beyond me because they haven't even had the power to transform themselves. It says they're loaded down with sin. They're swayed by all kinds of evil desires. They haven't even understood power to circumcise their own flesh, to transform their own life. They haven't harnessed the name of Jesus to be able to transform themselves. This is a sophacious Christianity. 1 Corinthians 2 forces my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. But here we see these men, their lives were built on a sham. And it was, it's a demonic thing because they're moving and they are operating as if they are in the light, but they are drawing from the wrong source. You know, the, the two men in the scripture, Janet and Jambres, we actually find them in Exodus 7. And they are the wise men and the magicians who Pharaoh calls upon. We know the story. It's Moses and Aaron have gone to see Pharaoh and God has commanded, throw your staff down and it's going to turn into a snake. And they do that to demonstrate God's power. And then these two wise fellows come along and do exactly the same thing. They are replicating the signs and wonders of God, but they are drawing from the wrong source. And that is fake and it's false. And the scary part, church, is that spirit can be within the church, can it not? Now, I'm not saying we're a bunch of wicked evildoers, but it's very easy for us to coast along doing church, but for the wrong reasons. We're not doing it for Christ. We're not doing it because we love him and we're ministering to him as we've heard this morning and done this morning. We're doing it because it's just a habit. 
or because we're keeping up appearances or because we're trying to climb up the church corporate ladder. And do you know why I know? Because I've done it myself. I have done it myself over the years. And I tell you, when the storm came and the winds came and the flood rose, my house fell with an almighty crash. And it is only by the grace of God that I began making the right choices and the right decisions. And I started drilling down into the rock and built my foundation. Church, if that's you this morning, don't delay. Do not delay. Get a for sale sign up on your beach property and head to the mountains this morning. Verse 7 from, the, from 2 Timothy says, the men were always learning, but they didn't know the truth. Well, what are they learning then? What is it these men are so consumed with learning? Well, I've said it before. How to please the people. Humanistic thinking. Humanistic reasoning. Philosophies. Worldly perspectives. The wisdom of the age. Popular trends. They're giving people what their ears want to hear, are they not? I can't imagine these kind of fellas preaching, deny yourself, you know, sacrifice, discipline, obedience. They're basically preaching. They're the seeker-friendly church that Pastor warns us about, are they not? That church natural. You know, church, last week we were encouraged to become a Priscilla and an Aquila. And we were encouraged to get alongside an Apollos and to help someone who might need uh, an injection of the truth and a revelation of the truth to further mature. Now, I don't know if anyone here has spoken to Pastor yet. I don't know. But I thought it was very wise that he said, wait a week and meditate on it and don't rush up to him at the end of the service last week. Because if we're honest, if we take stock, it might be that we are the Apollos and we might need the Priscilla and the Aquila to come alongside us and to, and to help us. If all you can offer to someone is human wisdom, can I suggest that you don't offer anything at all? Because if all you're offering is human wisdom and humanistic thinking, then you're making that Apollos dig the wrong foundation and that could mess them up for the rest of the days. Right, I've gone off tangent a bit. <laughs> um, we've learned a little bit about sand, have we not, this morning? If nothing else, you've learned a bit about sand, yeah? Would you like another sand fact? Okay, I'll give you one anyway. <laughs> uh, I did a bit of research then about building our house on the sand. And what the construction companies and what the, the building experts do is they take your plot of land, they take your huge area of beach, and using massive, massive machines that can do like 500 tons at a time, they wash the sand. They rinse the salt out of the sand. And the reason they do this, one website says, the washing of sand is required for many markets and applications. Nowadays, the finished product needs to meet specifications outlined by the ever stringent and demanding world markets. Well, Matthew 5.13 says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. We must never, never, never let the stringent and demanding world markets water us down and rinse the salt out from us. The world church simply wants to marginalise us. It wants to sideline us. It wants to wrap us in that nice pretty package called Christianity with a nice little gift bow on top and put us nicely on a shelf where we won't offend anyone, where we won't hurt anyone, where what we say 
won't cause anyone to be upset or have to do something they don't like. And a few months ago, I spent some time with a new Christian. And I went in as a Priscilla and Aquila. I didn't have the terminology for it then, but I went in and my goal was to try and inject a revelation of truth into this young Christian's life. And I, first of all, I went in, Claire Natrell, still with makeup on, I'm never truly Natrell, <laughs> but Claire Natrell went in and we built some chemistry up. Pastor said last week, didn't you, about building in the natural first, you build chemistry with people. You know, we, we clicked on many levels about how we brought our kids up, things we'd gone through, you know, just regular stuff. And then I thought, right, it's time to dig a bit deeper with this lady. So I went in supernaturally. And uh, this person, sadly, didn't like it. She basically, without going into too much detail, because obviously it's confident, she was struggling with some new age and some Buddhist ways of thinking. And the things that I had to say to her when I went in with the truth, natural Claire, but seasoned with the soul of the word, they offended her. And sadly, she's no longer walking with the Lord at this point. Basically, she just wasn't ready to accept it. But didn't Jesus say in Matthew 10, 34, I haven't come to bring peace to the earth. I've come to bring a sword. And that sword is in Ephesians 6. That sword is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You know, I spoke to this lady. I spoke to her in the word and she didn't like it, but it was the word she was offended with, not with me. If people don't like salt, well, they're tough, isn't it? You know, they've just got to suck it up. We can't let the politically correct idiots of this world take our sword off us and give us a pea shooter in case we hurt anyone or in case we offend anyone. Pastor Tony has always said that in the end times, what have you always said our battle will be in the end time? Truth and doctrine. And it's true, we're getting to that stage where people are going to try and oppose you and come against you. Even Christians will try and oppose and come against the truth. Church, stand firm. Don't let your salt be rinsed out. Stand firm on the rock. When I was dealing with this one lady, the one thing she kept saying to me, in a sweet way, because we still got on, she kept saying, I, I just... I just can't see it. I just, I can't believe that this is true. I just can't understand it. And that is the thing. Humanistic thinking only sees in one dimension. And it will never, ever understand heaven's logic. Pastor said that last week. I nearly wrestled him to the floor and said, shut up, that's my message. <laughs> and I said that to him. You know, it can, only, it can only exist in the one dimension. And Pastor referenced Matthew 16. And this is when Jesus said to Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The biblical truths have to be accepted and understood in your spirit. They have to be captured in your spirit, not by flesh and blood. And trying to reason, like this lady was trying to reason these biblical truths through with head knowledge, she was never going to get it. As we capture these truths in our spirit, that is when they, they penetrate us and that is when our mind can be renewed, can it not? Peter here grasped a hold of this truth and it was only when he grasped a hold of that truth and Jesus could see that he could entrust him to build in the correct manner, to build and be the rock because he grasped the hold of the truth in his spirit, not in his mind. 
if we think of the word superficial again, lying on, not penetrating below. The word of God has to saturate us. It has to penetrate us. It can't just be something that we know and we're around and we've got a Bible at home and it's a bit dusty and we bring it to church on a Sunday. It has to penetrate us every minute of every day. And it's not, people aren't going to like it. Going back to this lady, Hebrews 4 uh, verse 12 The word of God is active and alive. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to divide in soul and spirit, joints and marrow. You know, a paper cut hurts, doesn't it? A paper cut flipping hurts. Imagine having your joints and your marrow divided. That is going to hurt some people. That is going to offend some people. They are going to make an almighty rout about when you bring the word and the sword into their life. Even Christians, even Christians that have held on to the truth for 10, 20, 30 years and now need to step into a new revelation, they're going to create a bit of a fuss about it. That, that paper cut's going to hurt. When I was dealing with that lady, I did a bit of research, obviously, because I wanted to go in. I wanted to already have run circles round her before she threw some things up at me. And I read a bit about Buddhism. And I read this quote, and it says, In Buddhism, experience and reasoning come first, and then scripture The Dalai Lama states that when he encounters something that disagrees with his beliefs, he tests a new idea with logical evidence and approaches. And if it holds up, he accepts it. If modern science presents good evidence that a Buddhist idea is wrong, he will accept the modern science. Shame. Shame. And that is man-made religion. Man-made religion will always jump through the hoops that the world sets. It will follow the world rather than being a world, someone the world would follow, a pioneer, amen? Proverbs 3, 5 says, don't lean on your own understanding. Don't do it, lean on the word. It's already been written, it's already been established. The rock of God's word has already been given to us as a blueprint to build accurately with. It says, carrying on from that, Proverbs 3, 5, in all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Whenever we go away on holiday to the beach, I always try and keep my exercise routine up. Last two days and then the all-inclusive buffet gets me. But I always try and keep my running up. And have you ever run on sand? It's really hard running on sand. And you're trying to run on sand and you're going from the left to the right and you're wavering and it's really hard to get your foot, to give your foot good momentum and make progress. But when you're running on rock, normally I do pavement running when you're running on the hard solid rock your foot pounds down you create a good momentum you make excellent progress and that is when we're building on the rock if we're trying to run and build on the sand we are never going to mature and progress so going back to our house then another thing that I find unattractive about our house built on the sand is its location does anybody ever watch location, location, location? I, when I'm not on rightmove.co.uk, I'm on location, location. Nick, we need another house. <laughs> I feel it, I feel it. Um, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter how fabulous the houses are. If those houses are built on the M25, that's not attractive, is it? No? And geographically, thinking about this parable then, the house built on sand would have been built in a very low-lying position just purely because that is where beaches form. Do not be surprised if you ever climb Mount Everest that you will not need to take your bikini because there is not a beach up there. Beaches are formed in very low-lying positions. But you know, if we settle 
And if we live in a low-lying position, we've already heard this morning about this, we're not going to have a healthy perspective. We're going to struggle to make sense of all the things going around us. We're not going to have an angle on what's happening or what God's doing because we haven't got those resources to see because we're in that low-lying position. If, however, we're up here and we're building on the rock, we're in that place of unhindered view, are we not? We're in that place where we can have an angle on things that are happening. You know, I think about the very um, aptly named Hurricane Sandy. (laughs) Thank you, God, for the name Sandy there. Help me this morning. And I think about the destruction and the devastation that it's caused in New York this week. But praise God that the people knew No, the way the weather systems work in this day and age, they can accurately tell what's going to happen, what's coming along. And they knew that hurricane was on the way. And so they were able to make, uh, you know, get out, make the houses safer, you know, leave the area area entirely, etc. And the damage was limited because they could see, they could see it arriving. A friend of mine recently spoke to me about something that she felt was brewing in the atmosphere of her life. And she sensed in the spirit that this was a situation that was a potential catastrophe in her life. And she sought advice. She went into prayer and she went into the situation. And sure enough, there was a situation brewing. But because she'd already seen it, because she had her feet firmly on the rock of God's word, because she was already in step with the spirit, that situation was nipped in the bud and the damage was limited. And when we see Sky TV or when we see radio antennas, they're always in a high up position, are they not? And that's purely because that's where you get a better signal. And if we want to walk in step with the spirit, if we want to be men who understand the times, if we want to be people who can plan strategically and be used by God, we need to be high up to receive that strong signal. And as we dig further down then church, that is when we will be higher up. You know, last time I spoke, I don't know if you remember, I spoke about the Israelites and about how Moses sent the Israelites out in Exodus 7, I think it was. And he said, um, you know, go and spy on the people that you have to overthrow. And the Israelites came running back when they'd had a look and they came all frightened and scared. And they said, oh no, our enemies are like giants and we look like grasshoppers. Wrong perspective. I think also in Second Kings, when, it, when uh, Elisha and his servant are in the valley and they've upset the king, one of the kings, and the servant's really afraid because he looks around and everywhere he sees, he sees the chariots and the horses of the king. I can just imagine Elisha like, oh, open his eyes, Lord. And all of a sudden the servant's eyes are opened and he sees God's army, God's army circling more in number around them. But he was afraid because he had the wrong perspective. Things are going to seem insurmountable at times. Things are going to seem difficult. Things are going to seem like we're going to seem like we're in the rain. When God's saying, no, if you come further up and stand on the mountain, you're over the clouds. You're above the clouds because that's my perspective. So church, you know, let's get doing this this morning. Another bad thing then about the location of the beach is the sun. And uh, Nick, Dana and I, we love our sun, don't we, Nick? Every year we try and get away in the sun because obviously this country's rubbish for sun. And we try and go away somewhere really nice and hot. And I don't do suntans, as you can see. <laughs> I always look like a bit of a ghost. Um, but I still love the sun. I love lying in the sun. I slather myself with the sun cream and I lie in the sun. And what we tend to do is even though we might only be five minutes away from the beach, we tend to stick by the side of the pool. Because by the side of the pool, I can have my umbrella. 
and I can sit there with my table and all my sun cream out and I can have my umbrella and I'm covered and the sun is not beating down on me. And if we go to the beach, that's when there are umbrellas, etc., at the beach. But number one, by the time we've got out of bed, because we're lazy, aren't we, on holiday us three, there's never any left. And you have to pay for them. So why would I want to go to the beach and pay for an umbrella when I'm guaranteed an umbrella by the side of the pool at the hotel that I've already paid for, yeah? And that's the thing about being on the beach, church, is there is no covering on the beach. And it is wrong to build our lives without spiritual covering. Now, this is a massive, massive subject, and I'm, I'm coming to the end, and I don't have time to go into it. But so we're all singing off the same hymn sheet this morning. Jesus Christ is the head of all things, is he not? Colossians 1, seven. he's before all things and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that everything in him may have the supremacy. Amen. Ephesians 2.9, it's perfect symbolism for us this morning, says that Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and we rise to become a holy temple for the Lord. So there's no argument there. Our spiritual covering, number one, is Jesus Christ. Within the structure of the church, God has set pastors. He set leaders. They are men that we are to be accountable to, that we are submitting ourselves to, that we obey. They're there, people in authority for our covering. And within marriage, God has set the husband to be the covering for the wife. Nick is my covering this morning. God has ordained a structure throughout all of the fabric of our lives, which has been put in place for our protection. This structure, church, is our sun cream. You know, if you go out in the midday sun, you will get burnt without sun cream. You will go from white to red to itching to blisters and back to white again. And you will experience pain along the way. It's the same if we try and build without that spiritual covering and that spiritual protection in our lives. Sooner or later, we're going to get hurt. It's in our lives for our benefit. It's not there to limit us. It's not there to contain us. It's not there to try and shut us down. It's there to help us to rise and to go further. And I can say this miles better than the fellas on the front row because I am having the benefit of it in that in this church, we have an excellent, wise, godly spiritual covering. Do we not? These are men that love us, that care for us, that pray for us, and that truly seek for us to go further and rise higher. Me preaching this morning, that's surely a testimony to that, is it not? I haven't had, he hasn't had his hands around my throat yet, so I'm thinking it's a good sign. You know, he's trusting the blonde with the mic this morning. And that's what they want to do. They want to create runways for us. They want to see us go further. They want to impart in us all the tools needed for our success. You know, sometimes they might have to get harsh with us. And sometimes we might not like it. They may have to say no to us. They may have to discipline us. But doesn't it say that a father who loves his children will discipline his children? On holiday, it really bugs Dana whenever she's on the lilo in the pool and I've got my eye on the clock and I'm saying, Dana, Dana, come back, come back. And she knows what's coming. She trudges up, mom, what? And I say, I'm putting more sun cream on you. It's been two hours. You're having more sun cream on because you're out there in the sun and I don't want you to get hurt. It's for her protection. Our goal must never be to build a ministry for ourselves. You know, clairweber.com. Sounds good, 
but it's wrong. There are no superstars in the kingdom of God. Amen. There is just the bright morning star. Yeah. Hey, you can have that one. <laughs> uh, I've lost my throat. Um, our goal then must be to work diligently, to strengthen and to, to work, to labor, to strengthen the ministry of the church. Christ is coming back for his bride, is he not? His church. He's not coming back for individuals. He's coming back for his church. You know, going back to Priscilla and Aquila, if someone does come alongside you with, with the, uh, the desire to, for you to become accountable to them, for them to help you in your life, to help you rise and go further, don't get all upset and proud about it. Just see it as a necessary tool to help you on your journey. Just see it as a good thing. Now, I want to finish this morning by telling you just a little bit about a famous landmark. You'll all have heard of it, so you have to shout after three when you see the picture. Okay, John, do we know what that is? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's that. This is the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And you can see the building on the left is a normal building. It's the building on the right, if anyone doesn't know. So, John, you can just skip to the next one. Right, that's it. That's how it should be built. You see the white stuff that's been put on that picture? That's how it should look, and that's how it actually looks. And I want to tell you a couple of facts this morning just to finish. The Tower of Pisa has been leaning so long, nearly 840 years. But it's not natural to assume that it will defy gravity forever. Because the famous structure has been in danger of collapse almost since its first brick was laid because it was built on the wrong foundation. It began leaning shortly after construction. Builders had only reached a third of the tower's planned eight storeys when its foundation began to settle unevenly on the soft soil composed of mud and sand. With it only having a mere three-metre foundation and being set in weak, unstable sand, it was a design that was flawed from the beginning. Labourers tried to compensate by making the columns and arches of the third storey on the sinking northern side slightly taller. But due to the problems, the tower sat unfinished for nearly a hundred years, but it wasn't done moving. Sand under the foundation continued to subside unevenly, and by the time the work resumed, the tower tilted to the north, the direction it still leans today. Engineers tried to make another adjustment, this time in the fifth storey, only to have their work interrupted once again, whoops, with just seven storeys completed. Unfortunately, the building does continue to still lean, sometimes at an alarming rate. By the late 16th century, the tower had moved three degrees off vertical. Careful monitoring, however, didn't begin until 1911. And these measurements revealed a startling reality. The top of the tower was moving at a rate of around 1.2 millimetres every year. In 1935, engineers became so worried that excess water under the foundation would further weaken the landmark and accelerate its decline. To seal the base of the tower, workers drilled a network of angled holes into the foundation and then filled them with cement grouting mixture. This only made the problems worse and the tower began to lean even more dangerously. The preservation teams had to be more cautious and engineers and architects studied the tower, proposing solutions and trying to stabilise the monument with various types of bracing and reinforcement. None of these measures succeeded. And slowly over the years, the structure reached an incline of 5.5 degrees. 
Then, in 1989, a similarly constructed tower in northern Italy collapsed suddenly. Officials became so worried that the Tower of Pisa would suffer a similar fate that they closed the monument to the public. A year later, they rallied together another international team to see if the tower could be brought back from the brink. Armed with a plan, these workers went to the site and they wrapped steel bands around the first level of the tower. Next, they placed 827 tonnes of lead weights on the northern side of the tower. There, they poured new concrete ring around the base and connected a series of cables anchored far below the surface. Finally, using a drill just 200 metres in diameter, they angled underneath the foundation. Each time they removed the drill, they took away a minute portion of soil, no more than 15 litres. As the soil was removed, the ground above it settled. This action, combined with the pressure applied by the cables, pulled the tower in the opposite direction of the lean. They repeated this in 41 different locations over several years, constantly measuring their progress, and finally reported the tower seemed to be in no immediate peril. The actions taken by the team of experts could theoretically stabilise the structure permanently, and the real threat now comes from the elements. Even a minor earthquake in a faraway region could have devastating consequences. It is hoped that the tower will remain stable for at least another 200 years. However, quite possibly by then, yet further intervention may be required. Well, that's a travesty, isn't it? That's 840 years of manpower, of expense, of stress and of messing around to save something that was flawed from day one, from something that was built on the wrong foundation. And I'm really glad that this church is taking its responsibilities seriously when it comes to new Christians. We have started our discipleship course on Monday night. I've heard good reports from the people that go to it. And that's going to potentially save those new Christians from years and years of tilting one way and another and from not being sure about basic doctrine in this area. How do I hear God? How do I pray? How do I read my word? It's potentially going to save them from the whole life of messing around. And it's such a shame that we don't all get to start our journey in such a solid way. Now, how many of us bumble through life needing a team of experts to come rushing in and help us to prop us up, to try one thing and then we seem to look all right and then we fall down again because we're emotionally unstable. So we need other experts to come in and to pick us up. You know, like the tower, it might be that we have all this resource put into us and all this messing around and it'll only take one minor earthquake far off in our life for us to crumble and like my chocolate bunny, a little bit of pressure put on that chocolate bunny and it caves into itself. Pastor Tony spoke about the barrel of a gun a few weeks ago, didn't you? And you said that if a barrel of a gun is dirty, and Chris summed it up lovely, I can't remember the exact sentence, but he said it's basically, it's not fit for purpose. You can shoot that gun, but that bullet will not go where it's intended to. It's not going to work properly. You know, we've been designed and purposed, and we have a purpose in Christ. And if we are a tower that looks like that, built on the wrong foundations, we are not fit for purpose. We will never be able to use and go as far as Christ has deemed for us to go. You know, church, don't be proud. Even if you've been a Christian for 30 years, don't wait for a Priscilla and Aquila. Go and find one. You know, don't wait thinking, oh, I feel silly. We chatted a couple of us on Tuesday night, some of us girls about, we've been Christians for ages, but we've still got some questions we're not sure about. And we feel silly asking them because we're mature Christians. Well, don't feel silly asking. 
Get alongside someone. Grab Pastor Tony in the coffee shop. Grab Phil. You know, grab some of the other leaders in here and just say, hey, you know, when the Bible says that, what does it mean? Don't be proud about it. Don't be like the chocolate bunny. I've said here, just to finish then, that the storms are going to come. We've heard that this morning. There's no point laboring this point. The storms are coming. And will the storms either cause you to crumble and fall or will you consider them as pure joy? And will they shape you? Will they mold you? Will they mature you in your life? And I want to finish with a psalm that God's brought two weeks running. If you find yourself in this position, if you find yourself in a bit of a sticky patch, a bit of a sticky mess, if God's been pressing some buttons to you this morning, Psalm 40 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, out of the sinking sand, out of the coastal erosion, out of the rubbish foundation. And he set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. A stand to our feet, church. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information, go to www.thedreamcentre.co.uk.